What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Did, wait, I didn't Robert even see clap? Robert clap. What? Did you clap, Robert? Yeah, I mean, I, I clap. There, there, there'll be a few there. Okay. Two hours later. <laughs> I, I definitely clap. <laughs> the, the first one's in there. Don't worry. The, you'll, you'll thought it cues there. Take it away, battle. Okay, Andre, edit my voice for this. Make it sound scary. Don't edit my voice, guys. I think you're not going to make it sound scary. You're going to make it sound stupid. Boobie. You're going to edit my voice, but... Anyway, hey, everyone. It's battle, and this is... Lead Umbra is a murder rape talk about true crime cases of color and bringing music from artists you probably have never heard of before. And today, we were in Cosmo Bay. Brought us a murder, bring a light to injustice. I'm now a cosmopolitan. Stay out of my DMs, thanks. <laughs> nope, it, you it, got it, them good sex tips. Yeah. It's me. I am sex in a city. <laughs> yeah. I uh, the, when, when I found out I could not work, I stopped working, and I was in a meeting. Andre called me, and he called me twice, and I told him before, if you call me twice, I'm going to answer it because I'm going to think it's an emergency. He's like, it's not an emergency, but guess what? Go to my Facebook. We made Cosmo. I was like, bitch, okay. He's, I said, I'll call you back after, and I called him back, and he didn't call me back after he, after he said he was going to call me back. Because I was on the phone. And I was giving Melinda so much shit. I was like, ugh. I've been getting so many DMs from everyone, and like, we need to. F- I might have to like leave you for another celebrity. Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, you're not my like, clout anymore. And she just rolled her eyes and said, "Bitch, go make me some dinner because I've been at work all day." I'm like, "Yes, man." <laughs> yeah, she already secured a bag. She got a whole kid. You ain't going nowhere. <laughs> she got you for 18 <laughs> years at least. <laughs> you about to pay what you owe. <laughs> I had random ass people hit me up on Snapchat, actually, which was cool. <laughs> like I went to I had school with or whatever, but yeah, no, I had some old, uh, old flames from my little black book hit me up. I was like, how you been? I was like, Mm-mm. no, 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 don't, don't do that. Don't embarrass yourself. I didn't have anybody hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> kind of hidden on social media. Well, on Facebook. Yeah, yeah on Facebook. And uh, but welcome to the spooky month, the spookiest of months. Other than, I don't know, what's another really scary month? Uh, another scary so month. April. Yeah. it's April. I was thinking April. Too. Why? I don't know why. Tax why is April scary? Oh, Ooh. I think December. Yeah, because it's like dark and cold. And uh, no, because the holidays. And what we do around the holidays and how we pretend to like each other and then buy each other gifts. And the day after the holidays ends, uh, we start to be crazy again and be like, um, like what is this? What is this? This gift? Oh my gosh, I'm going to return it. Why didn't I get a gift receipt? That's why I don't fucking buy presents. I am the Scrooge. (laughs) Andre, did you read Friday Black? I did. I it has some spooky holiday stuff in it, too. We should have, like, a book club, honestly. Yeah. But anyway. Who got yeah, time so, to read? Audiobooks, babe. Oh, fair. Me, me and my ADHD, that's the Gob of War right there. The Glob of War? Gob of Ghoul. I'm, si- I'm, I'm 16% Italian, so, you know, I get it. <laughs> oh my gosh, stop. I'm like I'm like an eighth Native American. You know how much I hate when people say that? Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like, okay. It's like, it's, like, it's like, first off, you're probably not. <laughs> like, okay. So yeah, this is Spooky Month, and we're going to give you spooky content all month. Now, the episode before this was the witches one. Pretty sure that's going to be out. What? I, I, no, you guys, are, I, I didn't think that out of order. 
I didn't put out oh. the Witches one for a minute. So <laughs> I was going to put it out before this one because I was like, oh, I never used this actually. It's just sitting in my, <laughs> my drive. <laughs> so right now, sorry, stand battle. <laughs> I don't know what it is. We're like especially stupid today. <laughs> it's the morning. <laughs> Too early. But yeah, so all this month, well, the rest of the month, we're going to be doing serial killers. And this is our first episode. And uh, so who wants to take it away first? Okay, I'll go. I'll go first. Okay. No, that's go not. Ahead. Robert, you're going to go. No, yeah, no, no, go no. first, Robert. Yeah. Go first. It's cool. <laughs> So needless to say, uh, the leader of the Savage Drug Ring is Kaboni Savage. It's his last name. When I was first reading about it, I'm like, oh, like, where does his name come from, the Savage Drug Ring? Because I thought it was because they're like, super brutal or something. It's like, no, just his last name. That's like actually um, his real name, because it sounds like... Kaboni Savage, yeah. Name. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a fake name, but it, it is his, uh, his legal name. All the court documents are all like, the sa- Savage versus... When I tell people my name is Battle, they're just like, is that real? I'm like, yes, it is real. I know, it's such a cool name. Though. Look at We have 90. the war names. You're Battle, I'm Hunt. Kill some people. No, just I know. Not really NSA. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Kaboni Savage is from Philadelphia. He was born in 1975. Uh, he was originally a boxer. He only had one professional fight, though. He did win, but he was, like, training to be a boxer. But he's from the inner city, so the way he found to make money was by running drugs. In this area of Philly that he was, uh, he had locked down one corner, essentially, with his accomplices in this drug ring. And because he was known for being a very violent, brutal person, they didn't really have much competition, and they made a ton of money. And they were people who, you know, because this was like the early 80s, they were one of the first people to like do stuff like cutting drugs to like increase volume and stuff like that. Um, and they had a bad reputation, but that doesn't really matter when you sell drugs because people will still buy from you. Hey, they got a piece of shit, but I still. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so, <laughs> they're cutting this kilo in half to double their profit, but I'm still gonna buy it. I'm still, hey, it's local. But there was uh, one incident that kind of messed up all of his money. Kaboni Savage was uh, pulling into a parking spot and somebody else was trying to pull in at the same time and they bumped his car and people out on the scene of the crime said like, like you couldn't see any damage, like it really wasn't that big of a deal. But Savage got out of his car and they got into an altercation uh, and he turned around in front of this like block full of people that were all just kind of like hanging out. And he asked like, does anybody know this guy? And they said, nope. And he pulled out a gun and he shot him. He got everyone's attention, asked them a question, and then responded by murdering this man. I just want to make sure I have as many witnesses as possible. Yeah, the, uh, and the man he shot was Kenneth Lassiter. Now, Kenneth Lassiter was a foot soldier for another drug kingpin. I don't know, he ran another block. His boss was Tim Flowers, who coincidentally was also a small-time boxer slash drug enforcer. So that kind of started their beef. They Apparently there was also some history with them where there was a PCP deal that went bad between the two. But as a result of this murder of Kenneth Lassiter, Tibbs, or sorry, Tib, um, turned informant to put Savage away. Uh, later when he was kind of questioned about like, why did you become a rat? Like you were a drug kingpin. Like that's really not what you're supposed to do. Like that's not street code stuff. He said, because of the murder of Kenneth uh, Kenneth Flowers, no, wait, Kenneth Lassiter, sorry. Because of the murder of Kenneth Lassiter, there were cops on his block constantly who were trying to like solve this murder. So it shut down his business. 
So he said the only way he could retaliate against Savage was to put him in prison. So he testified and put him in prison. Uh, Tim would be later picked up, so they would be in prison during the same time, which is where kind of Savage became famous. He is now kind of used as the textbook example of witness tampering because he killed people from prison. He is said to have killed these people from prison because he was ordering hits from uh, his gang on people who were going to testify against him or against his businesses. He was the essentially shot caller, but the person on the outside who was doing all of his business was his younger sister, Kadata Savage. And he also had Lamont Lewis and Eugene Coleman and Robert Merritt to a lesser degree who were all members of his gang, who, you know, would murder people and continue to, you know, put money in his commissary and, you know, operate his business while he was on the inside. This kind of revenge he was trying to seek from Tim grew to the point that he ordered a firebombing on his family's house. His family? His family, yeah. And the firebombing was, I guess you could say, successful. It killed six people, two adults and four children, and all of this was conducted from inside the prison, through prison mail, through phone calls, and if you know anything about prison, all of those are monitored. So is there an inside cop or um, detention officer? Excuse me. So, no, they, they eventually found out all of this. Like, they pulled the records and like, oh, so he was orchestrating this so we can prove he did it, but I guess there was just no one listening at the time to like warn these people to stop it from happening what which is very strange to me yes by the time he went to you mean the cops weren't doing their jobs (laughs) (laughs) surprise ain't that about Uh, so Kaboni Savage would go up on charges for all of these murders it ended up being 12 people I believe total and also while I was like doing research for this I started to think like volunteering to be on that jury like this this we're charging this man for witness tampering and killing people and you're gonna want me to convict this person in the city that I live like that's horrifying and I know he's got people on the outside and it can't be that difficult to find someone off jury duty the uh he ended up getting 13 life sentences, um, and he was the f- uh, first and only person to be sentenced to death in Philadelphia federal court. He's still awaiting his death sentence. The the two men that were contracted to do the firebombing were also arrested. And if anyone is interested, you can go listen to the wiretaps from the prison phone. <gasps> Ooh, uh, really? Some of them are a little, you know, uh, gross and sad. Like, he talks about, like, wanting to physically hurt, like, very young children. Wow. Because he knew flowers had, flowers had children. So he talked about, like, oh, I want to, like, beat one of them to death with a bat. Like, stuff like that. Um, Jesus. So, if not for the faint of heart. But, uh, yeah, Kaboni Savage a, uh, got 12 murders to his name, most of which happened while he was in prison under his orders. Could you imagine having that much pull on people towards like, hey, I need this done, knowing that like the person that's in charge has 13 life sentences, which I don't understand. I don't understand sentencings or sentences to begin with that much. Like as far as like, would would one life sentence suffice? People that are listening, please actually come to my DMs and explain that to me because I, I, I want to understand like how it is like well because it's, it's like 25 to life so like say like if you get a life sentence and it's only 25 years that's really in the scheme of things not that much survival yeah like well and like if they do any appeals uh, like I yeah. think you could appeal like specific crimes or something could you go to so, like if they don't do all of them could you not have a life sentence with no possibility of an appeal or like a parole so does you that always it's your constitutional right for an appeal but yeah you can get it without parole okay 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 i see oh that's that makes sense then why they have consecutive life sentences yeah yeah but the thing though is it's like too like with some people because i remember this one case where this guy got like 256 years in prison it's like like is it really justice if it's a like a term that they'll never actually serve you know what i mean yeah 
Uh, I will also say Kadana Savage, his uh, younger sister who helped orchestrate everything, uh, also received a life sentence uh, for the role she played in the arson murder. It's crazy. It's really interesting because your um, case is very similar to my case. I did um, my case on Cleman Johnson, who went by Big Evil. He was a part of one of the, like, many... Thing nickname. Yeah. He was part of one of the many, like, subgroups of the Bloods. And um, it was a lot of the same stuff where he orchestrated like four deaths while he was in prison something like that and then an attempted murder and he was one of those people where like he would kill people and like get off because he was so good at like you know intimidating witnesses and things like that so um he was born october 15th 1967 to aileen and cleman johnson and had loving parents and four brothers two half siblings and two full brothers he grew up in a large or not a large but a nice three-bedroom home with a large porch on the 80th street neighborhood of la and he was a boy scout so but despite growing up in a loving family uh, he grew up right in the middle of the burgeoning gang violence in L.A., and the fighting became deadlier through, like, the 70s. So when he was eight years old, he watched a bunch of teenagers kill one of his friends right in front of him. So, like, within a few years, he was um, part of the, like... Well, I guess he had his own gang when he was a teenager called the 88 Monsters, and then eventually became part of the 89 Family Bloods, which I guess um, the numbers correspond with, like the streets that they lived on which is a thing yeah that's a thing that i was learning when i was reading about all the gangs in la where it's like their biggest identifier is like what street they live on because it's all based on their neighborhood yeah and so he was he was one of those people like that you didn't really mess with he was a good fighter from even when he was a teenager and by the time he was in this like late teens early 20s the 89 family Bloods was considered one of the deadliest gangs in the city, especially considering how small they were. He was described by law enforcement as being more thoughtful than like other people who ran in gangs. So like most people are like very reactionary, like, you know, you shoot us, we shoot you. Yeah. But he would like plan out like coordinated retaliation. Yeah. One thing I, I watch in this show called Gangland. It's like I love that show, but I just I get so scared. It. It's good. I think good. But uh, I was watching one episode where they were talking about they had some like biker gang dude, like an ex gang member on there with biker, and he was talking about how they would specifically like try to find ex military people or people who were in the military, or they were sending their youngest gang members to join the military just to learn like I remember that episode tactics and like battle tactics so Holy shit. when they come back they can like actually fight against other gangs like better I, <laughs> than like what street gangs would do I think one of the uh, episodes they did it on like how there was like never mind I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to start beef I'm kind of scared <laughs> yeah I was gonna say, if we if we do ever cover any like active gangs we got to be very careful about that <laughs> I get so I mean, like, already covered ms13 already I did cover ms13 and I am so terrified <laughs> I mean I'm not saying anything like we're just talking well, about it facts, like, yeah, yeah it's facts about like I doubt the ms13 is listening well that's the know. thing too is that I wanted uh, like this or are researching this case makes me want to like go over like gangs as a whole. Because, like, just, like, with the history of some of it, I mean, I don't know. Because I know, like, in, in part, gangs were formed because they were protecting themselves and their communities, which were marginalized from the fucking police. Or, That's what like, MS-13 other... was. Yeah. I think so. it was, like, Salvadorian? I think so. It's interesting, too, because going through some of this stuff, it's, like, all these, like... Because a lot of gangs originate, obviously, in L.A., and end up in other places. So, like, there are some gangs that started in LA that ended up in Honduras or El Salvador or Mexico. Which yeah. I would have thought it... I don't know. Anyway. I mean, well, and onto the East Coast, which in some cases is even further than, you know, like Mexico, for example. Yeah, yeah. Like, the fact that there are, like, Bloods and Crips in New York. Yeah. Oh, 
In Minnesota. That's a big jump. There's buzzing crimps. Yeah. Everything. I know bugs. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, in an article from the LA Times, it said about Johnson in, quote, in 1994, Gloria Lyons told authorities that she saw an 89 family member kill a man. She was killed. Georgia Denise Jones testified in the same case. She was killed. Two years earlier, Albert Sutton, it says in the Loggins and Baroque murders, which that's what actually got um, Cleman Johnson um, uh, in San Quentin death row um, on the, on death row. Um, And because so in that specific case, he had a member that he was trying to initiate named Michael Allen, and he gave that man a uh, weapon to go kill these two men who were just sitting in their car and had nothing to do with it. I mean, there's contentious case or evidence that like maybe Peyton Burrow was a crip, but I've seen things that say both that he was and was not. Um, but back to the quote, detectives latched onto a witness, Freddie Jelks, who was facing life in prison for a murder. During the Loggins Burrow murder trial, Jelks said that evil had ordered the killings. The jury voted to convict and sent Johnson to San Quentin's death row. So like that's just in that, like that's three different witnesses who were murdered in the process of like testifying against him. Uh, he even had ordered the death of the homicide detective that was investigating him named Detective Thomas Matthew. Any relation? Just kidding. He only has one T. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yes. Yes. But um, yeah. So, <laughs> and the the two people, the two people oh, that he actually was initially um, convicted of killing was um, Donald Loggins and Peyton Burrow. And it wasn't so much that he killed them, but that he instructed someone else to kill them. And then, so that, he was convicted of their murders in December of 1997. In 2011, the case was not overturned, but his, I guess his conviction was, um, and they're supposed to be retrying him for those two murders, as well as three more. Or, yeah, three more murders and then another attempted murder but it keeps getting pushed back. So it was supposed to go to trial in 2016, and the last thing I read of it, which was reported on in 2019, they still haven't gone to trial, especially with the moratorium on the death penalty currently in California, especially LA County. So he's still kind of sitting on trial, which is moratorium on the death penalty. So a moratorium is like a hold. So it's not like they're not banning death, the death penalty wholesale, but right now they're not supposed to be convicting anyone to the death penalty and anybody who is on death row, like, can't be executed right now. Essentially, it's like the whole thing right now with the moratorium on evictions. People cannot be evicted right now. The thing that's interesting is um, when he was 30 years old in 97, he was um, interviewed about all of this trial stuff and like all the things that he had done and the interviewer asked him like well because he said he wasn't worried about being getting the death penalty and he wasn't worried about being in san quentin and the interviewer asked him why and he said um oh because he said that he's been in worse places and he said the like the places he had been that were worse were in an alley with a 45 pointed at me too many times but i'm a survivor i just turned 30 i never thought i'd make it to 20 after I got to the death penalty, I celebrated in jail with some homemade brew. I know I'm going to be around for at least 10 more years with all the appeals. Getting the death penalty saved my life. And I mean, if you think about it, he's right. Because that was... That was 97. I mean... And it's now... Not quite, like, 25 years later. Plus, he's in his 50s. So he's been in jail this whole time. Which, if he hadn't been, he probably would be dead by now. Yeah, because that's the other thing that he said about it, where he was saying how it's like, quote, like, it's like people going to Vietnam and getting programmed to kill. They can't stop killing. And when they come back, they need help mentally. We couldn't stop killing our enemies here either. I was one of them sick individuals. They locked us away, but we needed help mentally. 
which is really interesting and insightful because like I agree like yeah because I mean it's like how much of that is a product of like your environment that you grow up in you know like you're because and that was part of his um, defense is that he is a product of his geography which like Apparently, game violence has gotten a lot better out there in the past 20 years. But, like, the thing is, it's like they've never... I mean, obviously, we know with everything happening last year and now that, like, it's not so much that they're helping the communities. It's just that policing has gotten more, I guess... I don't want to say adept, but, like, I don't know. Aggressive, maybe? Yeah. Well, and, like, if we look at, like, uh, Africa, the re... Re-education of child soldiers is like a big push for a lot of people because um, you have, you know, children like as young as like eight who are committing war crimes, and then once their warlord dies, uh, if they aren't killed in retribution by like local people, what what is that child supposed to do now? They like so there are organizations that try to re-educate child soldiers and like reintegrate them into society, you know, like. One, get them off whatever drugs that they were forced to be addicted to. Yeah. Try to get them mental health help through the trauma of, you know, being in war and committing murder. Yeah, it's just crazy because, too, like, I mean, especially here, it's all such this whole idea of, like, personal responsibility. And I mean, yes, there is a lot of personal responsibility for, like, the choices that we make, but at the same time, like... Yeah, like you don't got the tools to make those choices. You don't the tools. And if you never, if you were never given those tools from the jump, you kind of already at a disadvantage. So it was like, so like I, I, I moved to Jersey when I was like, 15. and then like seeing how like how I grew up, like moving from the inner city and village to the suburbs, to see like how my cousins and like other family members grew up who were still in the area, it's like, yeah, it's crazy. And it's literally just based on where you live at. And like how your life can just pan out. <laughs> it's you know privileged people not recognizing, saying like, "Oh, I would never make that decision. I would never make that choice." Like, okay, you you were never in an environment where that choice would have to be made because you don't have to. But I, I I can think like, oh well, if I was still in Philly at like sixteen, I'd probably run in the streets too because like all my friends, everybody's out in the streets. What was it? but yeah it's just like it's really interesting like all the different factors that like come into things like this like the other thing that like another of the rabbit holes that i fell down when i was researching this is that there is this entire article about how um one of the one of the detectives that was investigating johnson and is like had been working on the case like while he's been in jail for the prosecution um was quoted he went like out the the detective went out with like other people in the um attorneys the district attorney's office like to like a bar or restaurant whatever and he said something to the effect of like um sorry let me find it real quick Um, okay. Sorry. Um, he said something to the effect of, I was out there with those N-words. They call themselves that. And the other people sitting there were like, whoa. Hey. Um, and the, I mean, it took them a long time to, because of course, but eventually the prosecutor did, like, report that incident, like, incident. And, um, so, like, it had to be... hard R or... Soft. Oh, it was a hard R. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, man, um, like, yeah. So he he put that in like as part of the case because it like it. I guess it, it's supposed to establish essentially that the government officials are not necessarily reliable or good witnesses. That biases exist in that. Exactly. (laughs) Which kills me because there are multiple times where the district attorney's office, like, defends what he said. As far as, like, okay, um, it says here, quote, 
A prosecutor with the unit at the time concluded that McCartan had been referring specifically to gang members and that the use of the slur, uh, taken in proper context, does not provide circumstantial evidence that he is biased against African Americans. I beg the fuck. Make it make sense. Yeah, like, I just... It's just, yeah. And then they tried to say, well, he's not racist against all black people. He's just racist against gang members. At least that was my interpretation right. of it. Well, so. you're going to be overseeing cases involving gang members who may be innocent. Mm-hmm. This is not the so... Yeah. Yeah, he was... Um, he did leave the force, but he left with a six-figure um, payout and a pension. Nice. Hate to see it. Well, I'm glad the guy's on death row, though. Hmm? At least, I'm glad that he has life, uh, life sentence. Or death row, yeah. That he's, he's not continuing to... Well, again, he still, they still have to um, retry him. So, like, I don't know how it will turn out. Um, I don't, I mean, I feel like with the way California is going, they might get rid of the death penalty. I don't know. I don't know. That's just my guess. But it obviously is not going to happen anytime soon, so. Well, I mean, if there's any way to, like, leverage him as a resource to, like, stop children from joining gangs. Yeah, like, make him a fucking motivational speaker or some shit. And on that note, we're going to take a small break. And now, a short commercial break. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. All right, so mine also has a very uh, upsetting name. And <laughs> a more just upsetting and... Uh, I never actually read a case like this before, and I didn't know what I'm about to talk about was a thing, but I guess it is. So now, Brandon Thomer was known as the West Side Rapist, or as someone in a Reddit comment section said, the Old Lady Strangler, which I feel like is a more appropriate name. So now, so he was found to be guilty of 12 murders of elderly women specifically, and was sentenced to life in prison. So now, it has been on the record that Brandon did not have a good upbringing whatsoever. There isn't a lot of information on his background at all, other than from his accounts and, like, family and friends. But even that, they still didn't really, like, tell a lot. But we do know that he was, like, abused in certain ways. And this could have led to him, you know, being a serial killer. So... And since 1960, Brandon has been repeatedly arrested for various offenses over the like next couple of decades up until his first murder. He spent several years in a juvie and was subjected to physical and sexual abuse by other teenagers in the facility, which on top of already having a bad childhood can only just add to mental illness, to say the least. So because of this continuous abuse, he did develop a mental disorder and began showing signs of paraphilia. And paraphilia is the sexual attraction to atypical objects. So things people normally wouldn't be sexually attracted to or turned on by, he became sexually attracted to and turned on by. So after being abused by family members, Brandon left his home to live on the streets where he was forced to live a lifestyle that he couldn't escape. In 1970s, Brandon moved to L.A., where he first showed signs of drench... Sorry. Drench... I can't... I fuck up with my G's all the time. Drenchophilia? I'm pronouncing... I fuck up... Gentrophilia? Like, is that, like... It's oh, like... geriatric? Yes. So, gentro. Gentro. Oh. I can't... I, I mess up my G's a lot. <laughs> but, yeah. What, that's it. That is a sexually attraction... That's a, a sexual attraction to elderly people. He was sexually attracted to elderly women. Brandon was arrested in 1975 for assaulting and raping his first victim, who was an elderly woman. 
Brandon was sent off to a state hospital after being declared insane and was released in June of 1999. No, no, sorry, 1979. So he spent about four years in his mental hospital for rape and assault and got out. I don't know why. I feel like <laughs> a rapist should get more than just four years. Yeah, they gotta make sure they don't reoffend. They still don't. Yeah. They still don't. Yeah, no, they get. They, if we're too lax on rapists. Especially in the 70s. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so now, after his release, he actually sought to build his career as a musician. He did have, you know, his own hopes and dreams outside of raping old people. He also tried to get a job and just build up some, like, soft skills as a labor worker. Uh, in 1983, Brandon became the prime suspect for murders of two elderly women. It was not until he was caught trying to break into a house of a paraplegic 85-year-old woman was he arrested. Following the arrest, they actually searched his apartment and found over 200 pieces of jewelry, photographs, watches, and other small items that could be identified to over 34 elderly women who had died or been assaulted between 1981 and 1983. So, he, so, you know, they found he was guilty for 12, but he estimated, estimation, he assaulted or interacted with, like, around, like, 35 women, but some couldn't come forward, some that died afterwards. It was a whole thing. So, he could be... That is yeah, so... We can confirm he murdered 12, but the number could be higher than that. Because, like, he's linked to 35 other people. So, uh, the trial began early 1986. In addition to physical evidence, fingerprints that belonged to him on the crime scenes, the prosecutor was also presented with 100 witnesses. A number of Brandon's friends, family members, and acquaintances stated on his behalf that he had already shown signs of gentrophilia from a young age. And he uh, also tried to assault two elderly women at a supermarket where his girlfriend worked. Which is also very bold of him to do. Yeah. <laughs> so he, uh, and that when it comes to that incident, he also spent all this free time there too. So it was kind of just like a hunting ground for him. Because it's also suspected that's where he like ran into a lot of his victims. Like he would hang out in the supermarket see an elderly woman and kind of just like stalk them until he like makes his move that's kind of scary oh it's terrible like could you imagine minding your own business getting like your fucking milk not realizing that you're being stalked like stalking makes me nervous too i think that's my second biggest fear besides going missing like being stalked and not knowing because like it's like you i think that's why i like the show you so much because like Oh my gosh, right? I'd rather go missing than be stalked. <laughs> yeah, if I had to pick up, ah, yeah, I'd rather go missing. Or at least, like, I don't want to know that I'm being stalked. <laughs> yeah. So now, to continue, some of them also told the court that he had periodically, he periodically would find temporary work in the evenings or nights that would, I, the jobs that he had also coalesced where, like, the victims were in their locations. So he would stalk to the point to where as though he would actually work near where his victims were staying or were at just to be closer to them to, like... Surprised he didn't work in hospice. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, that would have been... <laughs> that would have been bad. So now, Brandon himself couldn't explain, like why he had this attraction to elderly women. He couldn't explain why he did it. He couldn't give an alibi and he couldn't like he couldn't give a you know he couldn't give any type of defense for himself. So ultimately in July 1986, Brandon was convicted of all charges brought against him. In July of 1986, he was uh charged and sentenced to life in prison. And he wasn't get death at first, but his defense attorney emphasized that his life and like his upbringing really led him down this path and he's like basically a victim of circumstances and of his own mental illness and that's what helped stay him from death penalty into getting several life convictions consecutively without parole he is still alive now at 71 he was moved from his initial his, his, his initial uh, prison to a hospital due to severe medical issues 
yeah, he's still well and alive and just hanging out at 71. No one's ever tried to, like, you know, interview and talk to him since. So, yeah, that is. And he's not going for any appeals? Just, like, waiting out the clock? Waiting out the clock. Huh? Cause, cause, well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad he's off the street. Yeah. Like, yeah. Just talking. Because during a trial, and again, even with the trial, there wasn't a lot of information out there on it, but from all I could see, he really just didn't have any type of. He didn't even try to make an excuse. He's kind of just like, yeah, oh, you got me. And it let his lawyer just do all the talking for him. And did you, again, there was no excuse. It's just, you did what you did, you're going to jail because you're a monster. Yeah. Yeah, that was my case on the uh, old lady strangler from <laughs> a Reddit post I saw. I don't like the idea of people looking at other people as prey. I mean, I no, get it. It happens all the time, but like... I think that's like the majority of the... I know. I was gonna say, even just like in the casual, like when people are like going out to meet up with people or like trying to hook up with people at like bars and stuff, like the way they talk about like hooking up, it's always just like a little off. Oh yeah, it's like the whole like pickup artist. Oh, I want her. Oh yeah. Uh, If you go on YouTube and just watch pickup artist videos, they can be really funny if you're drunk enough. Because like, damn, people really and like people really are down bad. Like, bro, just talk to somebody. I get it, it's rough, but don't listen to these assholes. Like, yeah. There's no like magic little hand wavy trick that'll just convince people that you're attractive. There ain't. <laughs> if you're mean to a pretty girl, then she'll want to have sex with you. <laughs> yeah. You gotta, you, you know, you gotta stand by ABB. Always be berating. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's the golden rules. But go ahead, Battle. Take uh, it Yeah, don't be stalkers, people. But anyway, it's me, Battle, if you didn't know. I think everyone I knew. Thank you. Yeah. Lawrence. Oh, that's a terrible name. <laughs> <laughs> I hate my first name. <laughs> so I am talking about the Tacoma Axe Killer. I like that we all had, they all had names. But yeah, before we talk about the Tacoma Axe Killer, I'm going to talk a little bit about serial killers because I think it's super interesting and informative maybe yeah it's informative it's information that you may have known you listen to true crime podcasts i'm assuming you know a little bit about serial killers but if you didn't um according to the fbi in order to be classified as a serial killer you one must have killed three or more people not less of one of which was committed within the united states having common characteristics so they they happen well here in the United only States. Only serial killers are here. We're we're talking about here in like the United States. So, <laughs> and the, I'm the, not that dumb. I promise. I am, but I read it so many times. So they also have common characteristics such such as to suggest the reasonable possibilities that these crimes are connected by the same actor or actors. So the same person or group of people. And if you think about the different serial killers that we've talked about on the podcast or from other places this would stand true another thing that the fbi talks about is about causality and the and the serial murderer which in the definition that the fbi uses causality is defined as a complex process based on biological biological social and environmental factors and in addition to these factors, individuals have the ability to choose to engage in certain behaviors. And you might think of, you might think, okay, what type of behaviors? Because most behavior is normal, right? Like if if we go down the street right now, you know, I think people we have an idea of what is normal behavior. If we see something out of the norm, and I'm using that in air quotes out of the norm we'd be like what the fuck is this person doing or why is this person act acting this way think about it like we go every single day walking around and we don't bat an eye about what's happening around us because we view certain things as normal behavior unless someone pops or, like me <laughs> i do understand though because defining normal is very subjective and normal to me or 
just like Andre said, mind your business normal to Andre is not normal to you, everyone. But I just think there are some innate, inalienable human normalcy that we experience. We can kind of distinguish what's normal and not. Right. Well, and like the community you're growing up in defines those things. So like those, like that one kid who doesn't fit in with their local community is going to be branded as weird for some reason. Right. You know, whatever it ends up being. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, you know, some things are wrong or some things are right and wrong. However, we don't all see it this way, depending on where you where or how you're raised. So this idea behind causality in the serial murderer or serial killer, we have these kinds of question questions like what makes a person become a serial killer? And this goes back to causality, meaning their upbringing, biological factors and the choices that they make throughout their lives that form them into being a serial killer or serial serial murderer. And this is a really dense discussion. I get it. And we could continue this on a different day. I, I really like, I, I really like the idea of doing something on serial killers, even though there oh, there's a lot of information and there's a lot of documentaries that have talked about it. It's just very interesting about serial killers. So, yeah, I think we should do that. Like, yeah. kind of like go into because I I was talking about how like the difference between like my case and Robert's case. These people killed more than three people, but they wouldn't be classified as serial killers. You know what I mean? Yeah, probably not. Right, because, because it's like they didn't physically do the act. That's why they they say by it's by the same. That's why the FBI uses it as the same actor or actors because it it kind of like lumps people in depending on how it's done, how it's done. How well, I think done. and motivation well, it, makes a difference too, because like these people are killing people in like retaliation or because of circumstance. Whereas like, I feel like serial killers kill people just because they enjoy it. Yeah. Just different. And yeah, like the opportunity. If, if, we, if we think of like the Iceman, he was a mob hitman mm-hmm. who was also a serial killer. But, you know, because he had killings, like, outside of his, like, role as a hitman, he, like, suddenly becomes a serial killer. I don't know if, like, all hitmen would fall into that category. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I would I, say they Serial killer or not. I don't know. Maybe like, a more of a mass murderer type thing. Well, See, it's like, yeah, kill for hire. Well, I'm, but that's still, like, a reason to kill, right? Kill for hire. But, okay, we gotta get yeah. back yeah. to the case. I don't know. <laughs> like, wait, let's talk. We'll have to get a... Secure that bag. Yeah, I would... I would love to have a discussion. Maybe this could be like a live stream that we do because that's, I like this conversation. Um, Philosophize. Yeah. <laughs> so my case with the axe killer, the Tacoma axe killer, one thing I did find interesting about this case was that the Tacoma axe killer actually changed how criminologists through, or how criminologists thought of serial killers and how they chose their victims because throughout different studies of crime especially surrounding serial killers serial killers tend to stay within their own race and I was reading on crimemuseum.org that the serial killer's first victim is often a sex worker or a homeless person because of their status and that's what their argument is of the status is like one I think we need to normalize sex workers because it's sex people have sex you know i i think that i don't think that they should be looked at lesser people same thing with homeless people who are homeless they 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 should not be looked as looked at as lesser people individuals but this is how society looks at people that good old meritocracy yeah so, and th- that's why they say that serial killers typically look at people who are valued as less than, in their eyes, as less than people who are worthy of being deemed of value. So, the Tacoma Axe Killer, however, defi- defied of what we thought of as a serial killer as he stalked and preyed upon white women in the 1940s. So, oh, wow. yeah. 
So the Tacoma Axe Killer, whose real name is Jake Bird, was born in Louisiana December 14th in 1901. And during his early life, he faced a lot of adversity, which makes sense because he was a black man in early 1900s. So one thing that connects all these stories, everyone has a horrible upbringing. Yes. And at the age of 19, he actually left his home. And he was considered a worker that never stayed in one place for one place for too long. He liked to move around. And his work mostly consisted of working for the railroads where he was able to make quick money for pretty tough labor and then move on to the next place wherever the railroad was going next. But moving from place to place meant that he would have the opportunity to do bad things in his case because that's what he did. Throughout his life, he was in trouble with the law a lot, and it was estimated that he served roughly 15 years throughout his life in prison for various crimes like burglaries, attempted assault, and attempted uh, murder. And it wasn't until October 30th, 1947, when he was finally apprehended and stopped. And so, here's what happened. While he was working on, while he was working or looking for work, Rather, he was looking for work. He stumbled across someone's someone's house. That someone was named Bertha Clunt. Bertha had a 17-year-old daughter named Beverly June. So Jake decides to break into her house and finds her purse and steals a dollar fifty, which in our time that's about sixteen or seventeen dollars. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Don't get that likeness monster no three pity. I hate all Sorry. of you. <laughs> God damn likeness monster. Excuse every excuse them, everyone. They do not know. Bless their hearts, right? Um no I'm just kidding, that's terrible. And I can't stop thinking about Isaac Hayes. <laughs> I was thinking Don't get that likeness monster no three fifty. Um Okay, so according to SouthSoundTalk.com, there was an altercation inside the house because Bertha and Bevler were there when he decided to break in and steal that 150, 150. Unfortunately for both of them, they were both brutally murdered and hacked apart by an axe that he had found in a nearby shed. Not so funny now. Yeah, that's what I thought. Neighbors called the police because they heard screams, and by the time they got there, Jake was running out of the house covered in blood. And he was able to actually run a block or two down the road before he was finally caught and apprehended. They investigated him and investigate and like talked to him, and he almost got away with brutally murdering these two people. And he, I guess, he like yeah, he just had the power of gab. He had a silver tongue. He could talk. He could, like, he was hip to the jive. Let's just say that. But one thing, one thing kept him from getting, or from kept, kept him from getting away. It was one gruesome fact that. He was covered in blood? No, <laughs> no, no. What's no. <laughs> about to say? It was brain matter that was actually. Hot, red hand. <laughs> Well, because, like, he was trying to, like, say that he didn't do it, and he was, like, defending himself or whatever, but he had brain matter on him. Like, he had brain matter on him. Like, it was, I guess, chunks of brain on him. So once in custody, Jake finally said, okay, yeah, man, I did it. Not in those exact words, of course. Yeah, man, I did it, man. He's like, look, look oh, here, man. look here. I don't know how they talked in the 1940s, or 19, like, 40s. That's how I assume they talked. So he can he just confessed, and he stated that it was a burglary gone wrong. You do not chop people up with a fucking axe if you are trying to burglarize someone else's. Get dogs, people, if you don't want guns. Like, just get dogs. I have three, and they will bite you. Yeah, if you get, like, your house is broken into, just pick up your nearest dog and throw it Yes. Out. I have a I have pit bull. What, he's such a cute pit Robert bull. Robert Durst of him. No, he came first. So, fast forward a little bit into this case, which lasted, or the trial, which lasted only about a day and a half. Um, he was actually found guilty of premeditated murder, and he got the death penalty. And 
the death penalty, death penalty. And the death penalty then was hanging. And according to murderpedia.org, at the end of his sentencing, Jake was given time to make a statement which lasted 20 minutes. And what he said, I want to summarize a part of it. He says, (laughs) (laughs) He said, I was given no chance to defend myself. My own lawyers just asked you to hang me. They apologized for defending me. If they were so reluctant to defend me, why did they test the prosecutor's proof of murder and now saying that everything is proven? Like, he pretty much was just like, why did you guys even, like, prosecute me? Like, if you guys knew already I was guilty, like, what's the point? And no one was going to defend me. It was different back then. People were just like... Never mind. I, I don't understand a court system. Like, someone explain it to like me. Like, because... How did I wind up here? <laughs> right? Like, bro. <laughs> like, what did? What do you mean? You had brain matter. You were covered in blood. But explain to me why I had a lawyer if I already had brain on me. Yeah, that's the thing. I was, like, I mean, yeah. But also, like, your lawyer is fucking apologizing for the Like, I'm so sorry that I have to defend this guy. Like... Listen, uh, a check is a check. (laughs) So, at the end of the 20-minute remarks that he made, he declared, All of you guys that had anything to do with this case are going to die before I do, which later became the name of the Bird Hex. And guess what happened within a year to five of the five men connected with the trial? Wait, it took a year for him to hang? Yeah. Within a year, no. They hanged him pretty quick, but within a year, five men died. Five men that were connected to his trial died. Judge Edward Hodge had an art attack, had a heart attack within a month of giving him the death sentence. One of the police officers who took his first confession, a police officer who took his second confession, Second confession, the court's chief clerk, a prison guard, and a year and a half later, the lawyer that sentenced him also died. So, his sentence was supposed to happen January 16th, 1948, but Jake said he had killed 44 other people, which was going to help police solve the case. So, of course, the judge gave him a 60-day reprieve, meaning they just put the the uh, death sentence on hold for him. They just postponed the execution date. And according to Wikipedia, Jake was interviewed by state officials and 11 of the murders were substantiated. So were actually proven. Yeah, yeah, he did it. According to him, he killed people in Florida, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Nebraska, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. How the fuck was he getting around? Remember his job? He was like a yeah, he was a transient worker, so he would work for the railroad. And like then, the railroad was still being established here in the United States, so he was able to travel and, like I said, do bad things. And yes, murder is bad. Another thing. Yeah, that was the curse because like he he didn't hire anyone to do it. They all died of like natural causes, but it was just very quickly yeah it was coincidentally yeah they they coincidentally died and another again i want to point out each of his victims were white women and he killed them with an axe or a hatchet which which in his story he said that he found that hatchet in a certain spot like in some random shed and eventually july 15th 1949 the tacoma axe killer jake bird was finally executed with 125 witnesses so he was publicly lynched and that's my case everyone i mean honestly it's surprising he like lasted that yeah like took him 10 because he was even arrested a few times for like burglary and stuff and like in that era well i don't think they're like if you think about it back then the justice system i don't think was super intertwined so everything was like snail mail not oh oh, yeah yeah, yeah. well that's the whole thing it was still like that in the 70s which is why it took them so long to 
convict uh, Ted Bundy. Yeah. Because like yeah, they, they just weren't talking to each other. In different yeah. jurisdictions. It's really difficult. But yeah, this one was a wild one. I I didn't think that it was going to be as intense. Like it has a serial killer, but also has the almost paranormal aspect of like the yeah, the is, Jake so birds crazy. the the bird hex, which you could read about it. It was just like there's all these conspiracies about what he was doing and him being a Satanist, even though I know plenty of Satanists that don't practice, like it's not about black magic. It's about removing the God and treating people with dignity and respect. There you go. Andre kiss him on the lips. His mustache, our mustache gets tied into each other's mustache. I guess we all need to have a mustache now. Put it up against the Yeah. It's just like touch mustaches, (laughs) but yeah, that's my case. That's fun. We actually all kind of had some like witness tampering. Oh yeah. No, oh, yeah, part of the chorus. And it's funny every violence against battle. Every time you said the uh, word H E X, my cat ears perked up. Oh. <laughs> she just kept looking over like who's who's speaking to me. If you didn't know, I used to think Hexy was Lexi. <laughs> I just like to keep saying it until I got annoyed one day. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know. And he got so mad at me. Before an episode, he like flipped out on me. He's like, "Why do you keep calling her that? Her name is Hexy." And then he puts me on blast on Instagram. Oh, I do remember that. (laughs) Just like, oh, (laughs) I'm gonna delete my Instagram. But hey, that was our very informative episode on some serial killers, which we're just gonna continue the rest of the month. So get ready for that shit. Uh, this was good. The cases were good. The mustaches were even better. But yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode today. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. There's going to be so many moments of silence for these people that are listening. Well, no, that's why we have post-production. And I, I hope you enjoyed the music. While we adore our mustaches, we will see you later. Bye. Bye. Time now for your latest weather forecast. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.